Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. If you were here with us last week, you know that we started a new series from Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. And we are excited to continue in that series today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and we'll get started. For those of you who are new to the Scriptures, Matthew is about 75% of the way through your Bibles, and it is the start of what we call the New Testament, which provides rich detail on the life, death, and resurrection of a man named Jesus from Nazareth. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are just starting a new series on the Sermon on the Mount which is basically an extended, powerful, provocative teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples on a hillside in the ancient Near East. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we talked a bit about what the Sermon on the Mount is and what it isn't concluding that it is not a moral code or a list of things to strive for, but rather it is Jesus' manifesto for living the kingdom life right here and now, in light of the inbreaking kingdom of heaven. Jesus is announcing the rule and reign of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven itself, and claiming that it is now breaking into this reality, that it is close at hand, and it is coming to earth in and through him. But how are we to understand this kingdom? How are we to engage with it? How are we to operate in it? Those are the questions that Jesus is going to answer for us. Today, we have just a few short verses, but they are layered in their richness, and they should fundamentally change the way that we live our lives as followers of Jesus. So, let's start by reading the text, and then we'll spend a few minutes unpacking the words of Jesus together. If you were with us last week, you remember that thousands have come to Jesus as he announces the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, and brings all sorts of healing and restoration in their midst. And that now he's going to teach his disciples, this small group of committed followers, in the presence of the thousands who are trying to figure out what is going on. But looking at his disciples, he says these words, starting in verse 13. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, 
Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, as the first disciples come to Jesus and are leaning into this new kingdom that Jesus is unleashing, he sets out to teach them how to operate in this kingdom. And he does this by using two vivid and powerful metaphors. He says, you, as my followers, as my kingdom people, you are like salt and you are like light. And, and to the original audience, these would have been um, moving metaphors and powerful imagery. Uh, but it's a bit lost on us, thousands of years removed. First, Jesus says, you are like salt. Now, salt in the ancient world had several important uses, and humanity, it's estimated, has been using salt for some estimated 6,000 years. Now, back in the day, they didn't have uh, the special uh, pink Himalayan salt that we buy at Costco, but uh, other than that, salt has essentially remained unchanged over those thousands of years. Now, in the ancient world, salt was incredibly important and part of everyday life. And as a result of its importance, it was extremely valuable. Israel would have harvested uh, much of its salt from the area around the Dead Sea, but that salt would have made its way uh, all over the ancient Near East. In fact, the word salt comes from the root word sal, which is actually where we get our word salary, because it was a necessary and valuable commodity. For example, salt was often used to preserve food, observing moisture and stopping rot. They didn't have uh, refrigerators or freezers in the ancient Near East, but salt would go a long way in keeping the rot at bay and drastically extending an item's shelf life. In a similar way, it would have been used for uh, medical purposes such as purifying wounds or extracting poison or the cleansing of people or goods. In addition to those things, just like today, it would have been used for the flavoring of food and it would have played an important role in keeping people healthy and balanced in a hot, humid climate. And so, uh, Jesus references this everyday valuable commodity, and he says, You, my followers, my disciples, my kingdom people, it, you are like the salt of the earth. You, you are this beautiful, valuable, useful entity, and your presence in the world actually preserves it and, and purifies it and, and keeps the world from going bad. The world is bent in that direction. The steering wheel is constantly pulling to the right, threatening to take it off the road. It, it is starting to rot and decay. But, but followers of Jesus are sent into the world as a stabilizing force that keeps it from going bad. 
And not only that, it, it carries with it a message that preserves and saves those who receive it. You, you have this purifying, balancing, preserving effect, and both you and the message you carry will bring life and renewal and eternity into a world that is attempting to rot and decay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the most well-known Christians of the 20th century, said it this way. He said, Jesus calls his disciples the salt of the earth. Salt, the most indispensable necessity of life. The disciples, that is to say, are the highest good, for without them it cannot live. They are the salt that sustains the earth, for their sake the world exists. Yes, for the sake of these poor, ignoble, and weak, those who the world rejects. In casting out the disciples, the world is destroying its very life. And yet, wonder of wonders, it is for the sake of the outcasts that the world is allowed to endure. He's saying, hey, I'm sending you into the world to purify, to cleanse, to stabilize, to preserve. And it feels like you're on the fringes. It feels like you're worthless, but you're not. You're actually central to God's redemption plan. Second, and in a similar way, um, we flavor the world. There is a, a, a flatness to what the world has to offer. There, there is a mundaneness and a, and a flavorlessness to the lifestyle that the world has to offer. And so Jesus says, just like salt, I'm sending you into this empty world to engage in it. And as you engage in it, you're going to draw out its beauty. You're, you're going to draw out its flavor, just like salt. You're going to, to, there's Latin beauty there that nobody sees, but you're going to have this influence on the world, bringing flavor into it. But, Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. I, you need to be unique and different and filled with the Spirit of God in, in order to be that flavor, in order to, to preserve, in order to be salt, you have to maintain your saltiness. You have to be different. But you also have to engage. It, it, you have to do both of those in order to be effective. If you completely assimilate, Jesus says, if you become just like everybody else, you lose your purpose. You become worthless. To put it another way, um, salt is not the food itself. It's different from the food. That's what makes it potent and, and powerful. It has an effect on the food. So if you have a burrito, a bland burrito, and you um, put more bland burrito toppings on it, it does not change the taste of the burrito. It has to be distinct. It has to be different in order to have an impact and flavor on the food. But if it's salty and remains separate from the food, the food still tastes the same. If you have a bowl of salt and it's even an inch away from the food that you're consuming, it has absolutely no effect. 
So he's saying you need to do both of those. You need to maintain your saltiness, maintain your flavor, and be engaging in the world at the same time. If you completely assimilate and lose your flavor, it's, it's worth nothing. And if you withdraw from the world and become your own separate bowl of salt, you're still not fulfilling your purpose. We have to do both. So uh, stay salty, so to speak, and distinct, but also stay engaged with the world that needs us and Jesus so badly. And, And as you attempt to do both of those, as you attempt to maintain your distinct flavor, and you attempt to engage, the overwhelming pressure is going to be on you to lose your saltiness. The overwhelming pressure is going to be for you to conform and assimilate and give it up and stop going against the grain and stop standing up for Jesus in the kingdom. Just give it up and lose your saltiness. And so what Jesus is saying in the words of Paul is that you need to be in the world but not of the world. At the same time. And in fact, Jesus prays for his disciples, including us. He prays for us, and his prayer is really profound. He says, God, I pray that you would not take them from the world, so that it would be their own withdrawn separate community, having no flavor or effect. Instead, I pray that you would keep them in the world and that you would protect them in that world as they engage with that world. I pray that you would help them maintain their saltiness. And I'll say this, as a young church um, full of a lot of young people, there is a very real danger that this will happen to us. Because if you look at the direction that the culture is headed in in a post-Christian world, where the mainstream culture, mainstream American culture, and our mainstream education systems and all of it are trending away from faith and away from Christianity, there will only be increasing pressure on us as individuals and the community to step away, to withdraw, to lose your saltiness, to disengage, to stop talking about your faith, all of it. And and so there's been a lot of... um, in this post-Christian culture where we're seeing rapid decline uh, throughout churches all over the place, across all denominations, people are increasingly talking within the church community about this buzzword called relevancy. Are, are, Are we being relevant to the culture? Are we being relevant to young people? And those conversations are not all bad. It's it's okay and good and fitting and right for us to say, hey, what questions is the culture asking right now? And how does the gospel intersect with those questions? But above all of those pressures, we need to hear the voice of Jesus saying, hey, don't lose your saltiness. Not even an attempt to be relevant to the culture. Do not lose your salt. If you do, you become worthless. And by the time you actually arrive at the people that you want to help, you'll have lost your saltiness. Engage with the culture, but be distinct in your heart, filled with the Spirit, filled with the truth of the gospel. Be like salt. Actually, Jesus says, you are salt. This is not something that you have to strive to become uh, or, or that you need to earn somehow. You actually already are. 
You are the salt of the earth. And it's really difficult for salt to lose its saltiness because that's just who you are. But let me tell you something else, Jesus says. You are like salt, but you're also like light. You are the salt that preserves and flavors and transforms, but you're also the light of the world. And let me tell you why this matters. First off, the Jewish vision of God was a beautiful and compelling one. And it included this concept that God alone was the light into a world filled with darkness. That ever since the fall, our world has been in darkness and God comes to us as the light. So the world is in darkness and Galilee as a region of Israel in particular is, is known as, quote, a land of darkness. And God alone was the light that was to come into that world. But then you get God, Yahweh, coming in the person of Jesus and saying, hey, I am the light of the world. And this would have been shocking if you're face to face because, wait a second, God is not human and he's the light and who are you? So already there is this kind of challenge of like, how is Jesus, you're claiming that you are God. And that would have been shocking enough. But then we get something even more shocking because God is standing there in the flesh looking them in the eyes and saying, no, 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 you are now the light of the world. And if that evoked anything in their minds uh, at all, if they were kind of racing through Scripture, what does he mean we're the light of the world? I thought God was. One of the passages that may have come to mind was uh, some of the prophecies from, from Isaiah spoken hundreds of years earlier. This is what God said through Isaiah. He said, I, the Lord, or Yahweh, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hands. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, which Gentiles means the entire world outside of Israel. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, now that you've given yourself to me and my kingdom purposes and my work in the world, the light of God is in you. You are that light. You don't just carry the message of light. You are the light shining into the darkness. All of this is coming true, Jesus says, in and through me. Many of you know um, a little bit about my story. I was born into a, a very loving, um, very stable uh, atheist home. Uh, and, and I would say that I was raised with some Christian values. Um, we were relentlessly told about the golden rule and doing unto others as they do unto you and things like that. Um, but we had absolutely no exposure to God or the gospel. In fact, um, God wasn't even like a category that I didn't think about it. It never crossed my mind. Uh, I just went and lived my life. Um, and so uh, as I grew uh, older and learned and started asking questions, I naturally filled in a lot of those blanks and answered a lot of those questions um, using one of my great passions, uh, which was science. And so what I did with science um, as an atheist is that I used it not just as a helpful discipline in exploring God's good world, but actually more of like a, a religion almost. 
because it answered all of those questions about how I got here and what my purpose was and what life was about and what would happen after I died. Science provided answers to all of those questions, and so I just accepted those answers, and that was fine with me. And so as I grew older and got into high school, I kind of just persisted in this attitude of skepticism and disbelief, accompanied by sort of this natural and growing um, distrust, honestly, of the church and kind of a frustration with it. And what I saw from a distance um, just seemed like these weird, strange, outdated um, doctrines that essentially the church was trying to brainwash people with. And that was a really frustrating thing for me. Um, and, and the very concept of God in my atheism um, just sounded absurd. It just sounded crazy and absurd and unfounded and, and superstitious and honestly just kind of foolish. Uh, even dangerous, really, because of, of what it compelled people to do. And then uh, something sort of interesting happened um, late in high school. And through a series of really strange events that I don't totally have time to unpack this morning, um, my brother and I, as high school students, ended up going on a high school mission trip uh, with my uncle's church uh, out in Ohio. And, and, and so the summer of my junior year, uh, we drove from Seattle across the country 2,000-some miles to Ohio, and almost immediately uh, were thrown into a bunch of big white church vans uh, with a bunch of people that we didn't know uh, to go on a trip that we knew nothing about in the name of a God that we didn't believe in. What could possibly go wrong <laughs> with that? And, and so we started driving from Ohio now down to South Carolina to build homes after a hurricane. And uh, the first couple hours, understandably, I was just kind of in shock. Like, where are we going? Who are these people? What are we doing? Uh, but after a couple hours, the, the shock started to wear off, and, and I started to settle in, and, and I started to notice some peculiar things about the people around me. Um, the students on this trip, for one, they were all very different in that they dressed differently, and they listened to different music, and they came from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And yet, as I watched them, I, I saw this unity among them. That, that was just unusual and, and caught my attention. Well, how is it that you that you all see each other as equals and you all, and, and I started to, 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 to kind of pay attention a little more. They were doing things that I couldn't explain. And as I watched them, uh, as an atheist kid from kind of coming from a rough um, public high school, I started to notice more things about them. I, I started to notice that they didn't have cliques. They all freely associated with each other. And, and they didn't cuss, like, ever. Like, and, okay, well, you just stub, stub your toe. Why aren't you, cu like, this is the appropriate time for that. Why, wh what are you doing? And, and I started noticing th these different things. And as I watched them and just doing their thing, I, I, I started to notice that they were almost, like, glowing. They, they had this life and this love and this energy that I'd never seen before. And, and, and suddenly I was, I was drawn in, I was drawn deeper into the community, and I started paying more attention. They, they had this unity that, that wasn't based on all having a positive attitude or, or having a joint social justice agenda. 
there was, there was something else at work in them. And, and this community, they just accepted us into their deepest love and confidence, probably because they didn't know what we believed. They're like, oh, you're on a mission trip. You love Jesus. We're like, who's Jesus? Like, ah. Uh, but they did. They just welcomed us uh, into the depths of, of their community. And, and all of a sudden, I could see this light. And I could taste this, this saltiness, this flavor that I'd never tasted before. It was as if I had never seen the light before. It is as if my, my life had been bland and mundane, as if my, my self-proclaimed purposes were bland and mundane. My atheism just felt flat. I had never seen a community operating in the Holy Spirit before. And it was simple, and it was humble, and it was beautiful. And now, my, my eyes were opened, so to speak. My, my appetite w- was stirred. And, and that, that week or week and a half in South Carolina, it changed the course of my life. And, and I walked away from that mission trip thinking, hey, I, I, these, are my, these are my people. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I had no idea what Christians believed. I had no idea how to become a Christian. And yet I was so drawn in by this community that I kind of thought, well, the, the, I'm, part of, I'm part of this thing. I want, I want that. I want what they have and not what I have. And, and that experience, it threw the door wide open for me several years later as a freshman in college um, to actually engage with and accept Jesus. But I'm telling you that the visible love of this community and, and that light of the Holy Spirit at work inside of them, that meant more, it was more impacting than the strongest apologetic or the best philosophical argument for God's existence. Because when you see that love, when you see the light at work in a community of Jesus followers, all of those philosophical arguments go right out the window. I don't care anymore. I want, I want that. That's proof that Jesus is back from the dead. I want that. I want what they have. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. Isn't that what happens when we get exposed to salt? It, make, it just makes us thirsty for something more. And so that's our goal. That's our goal as disciples of Jesus in a community here together. We want to be salt and light in the culture in such a way that it makes people thirsty for something more. And here's the thing, I don't know if those students um, actually knew who we were or where we were coming from. I hope my uncle warned them about what we believed and, and who we were. But whether they knew that or not, I guarantee you that they did not know the effect they were having on us. They were just being themselves and operating in the spirit and going about their normal, let's just follow Jesus together. They had no idea. And here's the thing. The longer you follow Jesus, the easier it is to forget that you have this, that our community is filled with the Spirit, and that when people who have never encountered Jesus before come into contact with our community, it it stirs something. And more often than not, life feels really mundane and really routine, and you don't feel like salt, and you don't feel like light. 
you wake up in the morning and, and you feel like a normal human being with bad breath and too many pounds and too few dollars. And just, ugh, this is, this is life. And you just go about your day. But, but you forget. And Jesus is saying, life is not ordinary. If you are my follower, your life is not ordinary. Do not forget. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And there is a sense in which we strive to keep our saltiness. But there is a sense in which God has made you to be that. In Jesus, you are a new creation. End of story. You are salt. You are light. And so rather than fight against that and attempt to lose our saltiness and attempt to withdraw or assimilate or attempt to put a bowl over it, so to speak, we just accept it. We say, Jesus, I accept who you've made me to be and I accept the role that you're asking me to play in the redemption of our city and the redemption of humanity. I accept it and I, instead of hiding it, I press into it. That, that's it. That, that's the heart behind becoming, and rather being, salt and light, because you already are those things. The early church fathers, uh, and many after them through the millennia, were quick to point out that salt is made through a simple process of water, wind, and fire. And they, they didn't have iPhones and Twitter and all that stuff, so they had time to meditate on things like this. And, and they said, hey, that, yeah, that, I get that. that. That's actually right. Because as disciples of Jesus, we are made through the water of baptism, through the wind or the breath of the Holy Spirit, and through the fire of God's radiant love. That's just who you are. You're not striving to become those things. You don't earn your way into being them. Through a simple process, God has made you to be these things. And so as we close, just a few practical thoughts about how we here at River's Edge um, see this playing out in the life of our church. Um, first off, these identities and functions of salt and light that Jesus is sort of unveiling uh, are not to be understood as individual callings. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus' encouragement for individuals uh, he, he's not just unleashing a new moral code for individuals to follow. Uh, rather, what he's doing is creating a new kingdom community that will one day be referred to as the church. And so the word that he uses as he's looking at his disciples collectively and the thousands beyond that collectively, he says you, and the word he uses for you is actually used in the plural sense. So you uh, all of you are salt, and all of you together are light. Or, if you prefer the southern version, y'all. Okay? Y'all are the salt of the... Y'all, all of you together, collectively, take on this new role. Uh, and so there are two... Um, fundamental, these are two fundamental aspects of, of how we see the church living out its life. Uh, in short, to sum up what Jesus is saying, is that the church is intended to scatter and gather. First, we'll take gather. 
ever so briefly. Um, the church fulfills its purpose as we come together in a gathering to celebrate who God is, to celebrate what he's done in Jesus, and to celebrate and press into what he's up to in the world right now. And so as we do that and gather together, we form this alternative community that operates in these, in these new uh, heavenly rhythms that Jesus is going to teach us about. And, and we become the light of the world, magnifying the, the beauty of God and the beauty of the gospel. And, and so we invite other people into this, what you're at right now, an expression of our gathered community. Because, because that's how light works. Okay, so if you take 10,000 little lights and you spread them all over the ancient Near East, then a, a traveler at night coming through the region would see nothing at all, total blackness and all the dangers that accompanied it. But you take thousands of little lights and you put them together in one place up on a hill and that light could be seen for dozens or some experts think hundreds of miles out into the desert. And so as you're in the land of darkness, you see this light, this dim glow on the horizon guiding you in, guiding you home back into the place where you belong. That, that's the gathered community and how we're intended to function. And so as we do that, as we gather uh, here and, and in missional communities throughout the week, we, we, you are functioning as the light of the world. And so we say, hey, we need to be unafraid to be the visible community inside of these walls and outside of them as we engage. We're, we're not afraid to be identified as the visible community of light. Why? So that people will see who you are. They'll see the light. They'll taste the saltiness. And they'll praise your Father in heaven. They'll see you, not your bumper stickers, not your Christian t-shirts, not your politically charged Facebook posts. You, light, gathered community people embodying the love of Jesus into a broken world. The church gathers. And finally, as we close, the church scatters. Salt is beautiful and necessary, but it only fulfills its function when it's spread out. No one gets up in the morning and pours themselves a bowl of salt. Instead, salt spreads out in little individuals and clusters all over the place, drawing out the beauty, preserving, doing all of the things Jesus says we are to do in the world. And so we place ourselves in contact with people who don't know Jesus, despite the discomfort that that can cause us. And in this case, Jesus talks about persecution. He says, in spite of those things, you are to be the salt of the earth, spread out. And so we scatter throughout the week as individuals and as couples and as families and as missional communities in workplaces and on college campuses and in classrooms and whatever it is that you're doing. He says, go and do what God has called you to do, vocationally or otherwise, and as you do it, go and be the salt. 
And so we, so we scatter in missional communities throughout the week where we encourage one another and, and maintain our saltiness and we engage in the community in unique and specific ways, bringing God's justice to our city. We were intended to scatter. And so these two rhythms, the gathering and the scattering, are both central to our rhythms and who we are as a people. In fact, our core activities as a church are to gather, scatter, serve, and give. And if you've been to our website, you know these are the tabs across the top. This is the lens through which we view life in the church. And that concept of gathering and scattering comes from this passage, from this idea that Jesus has given us, this identity that he's given us. And so in the months and years to come, I hope that we become increasingly familiar with this language and what it means and what Jesus intended by it. Because if we think about who we are, we say we are at River's Edge, we are a family of missionary disciples. This is what we unpack in in the vision series every, every fall. But what do we do as a family of missionary disciples? We gather We scatter, we serve, and we give. You are salt that scatters, and you are light that gathers, and both are essential in living out the call that Jesus has on your life to the city and to the nations. And there are people out there like me who have no idea who God is. I do now. (laughs) Otherwise, this would be really weird. Um, who, Who currently have no idea who God is, who will be invited into the gathered community and they'll see what I saw and they'll taste what I tasted and they'll say, I want to go all in. I've been waiting for this my whole life. And there are a whole bunch more people in our increasingly post-Christian culture that will never walk through those doors, no matter how many times you invite them. And so our community scatters as salt to encounter those people where they're at. Why? Because we, not just you as an individual, we are salt. And we are light. And and we're learning to perfect our identities in Jesus as we walk together in community. And as we do, we increasingly take hold of the life that Jesus calls us to. and, And we make it possible for those out there to to see the light and taste the saltiness and as a result, to learn to praise our Father in heaven. Let's pray.